All right, let's uh, bow and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for the wonderful privilege that we have to gather together as the body of Christ today to worship you. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. We thank you for your sovereignty over all your creation. We thank you for your sovereignty over all history from beginning to end. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for revealing yourself and for your great plan of redemption. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather around your word now and and to study it. And we pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on each and every one of us so that we could truly understand what you are trying to teach us from your word today. We thank you, Lord, especially for your grace and mercy and love and sending Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So we've arrived at part 10. So uh, we're in a study of the book of Revelation, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ as it uh, names itself in the very first verse. Uh, And this is a 39-part nine-month journey through the book of Revelation, and we're up to part number 10. And so uh, we're looking at the the letters to to the various churches, uh, and we're up to the letter to the church in Philadelphia, which is a faithful church. So what we'll learn today, so I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what I told you. Uh, So what we will learn today, we'll look at the letter to the church in Philadelphia, we'll look at the correspondent, who it's from, we'll look at the church, who it's to, we'll look at the city in which that church resides, we'll look at a commendation that Christ makes to this church, we'll look at a command that he makes, and the counsel that he gives to this church, but not only this church, of course, in the first century, but to all churches in all times throughout history. So, uh, just as a reminder, um, John received the the vision of uh, Revelation on the island of Patmos, and then the messengers took the message to the church in Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and now we're on to Philadelphia. But first, let's take a look, a review at what we did last week. So last week we looked at the letter to the church in Sardis. Um, There was a unique introduction. It was to the seven spirits. It's a phrase from um, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, the seven spirits being uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, the seven stars, the seven messengers, the elders of the churches that we talked about from uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, one from each of the churches, carrying a copy of the book of Revelation as they go around. Um, And this kind of introduction here um, to the church of what they, uh, reminded them of what they lacked. Uh, They were devoid of the Spirit, and the church was dead. Uh, There are no details in the scripture of the founding of the church of Sardis, with the exception of the general statement in Acts chapter 19 that the gospel went out from Ephesus to the entire province of Asia. Uh, And so most likely uh, the the gospel radiated out from that church in Ephesus here to Sardis. Uh, We uh, we do have some extra biblical references to Sardis. Uh, Melito ended up being a bishop there at Sardis in the second century. 
the letter doesn't speak of any specific persecution in Sardis, um, because why would Satan bother to persecute a dead church? Uh, Sardis was f founded um, in antiquity around 1200 BC. Uh, it was the, the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. Um, it was a, um, on the royal road to the Persian capital, uh, and so it was a trade center. Um, it eventually came under uh, Roman control, as we talked about last week, uh, in the second century BC. Uh, there was a catastrophic earthquake that destroyed Sardis in 17 AD, and we'll see that it also destroyed Philadelphia in 17 AD, the same uh, earthquake. Uh, Sardis was a dead church. That's how Christ identified him. Um, he skipped the usual commendation. So we've been, we've been seeing in the previous letters that um, even if there were problems, Christ would first start with a commendation of that church, what they were doing right. With this church, Sardis, that we looked at last week, there was no commendation. It was straight to, you're dead. You're a dead church. Um, there, was, there are some danger signs that we went through of uh, the possible signs of a dead church. Because remember, this is an identification of a particular dead church in the first century. But it, we can look at it as a type of a, of a uh, dead church that could exist any time throughout history. Uh, so some danger signs of a dead church. One, content to rest on past laurels. Two, focused on social ills rather than preaching the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, um, uh, trying to change society outwardly rather than changing individual human hearts. Uh, three, more concerned with material than spiritual things. Four, more concerned with what men think than what God said. Five, losing its conviction that every word of the Bible is the word of God himself. Those, those are some possible warning signs that we went through last time that a church may be dead. Uh, so they had, uh, they had some deeds that, that outwardly looked like they were alive, uh, but they were not completed in the sight of my God. In other words, they were either uh, not really uh, good deeds or they were deeds that were done for uh, selfish reasons and not for the glory of God. He gave a command last, last time to the church of Sardis, to the faithful remnant. Um, he first said, wake up. Um, then he said, strengthen what remains. In other words, hold on to what's right. Um, and the third was to remember what they had received and heard. And fourth was uh, to keep what they had received and heard. So that's, this was the, that was the instruction to the faithful remnant. So uh, in the dead church, there was a faithful remnant. Uh, if uh, the consequences of re revival didn't come would be severe, Christ said. Um, and this threat was not, this, this particular threat doesn't seem to be related to the second coming, but the destruction of that particular church in Sardis. Uh, and it can be extrapolated to a warning of judgment for any dead church. Um, at Christ's return. And so the only way to avoid that judgment uh, was, uh, for those who know the truth, is to turn away from um, the evil deeds, follow the path of spiritual life rather than death. Uh, so there was a few Christians that remained, we saw last time, um, and this remnant even in a dead church um, were described as those who had not soiled garments, uh, garments kept, uh, symbolizing character in Scripture, so unsoiled character. Um, 
they would come into God's presence um, because they had not defiled or polluted themselves, but manifested godly character. This remnant, even within a dead church. Christ also promised that every true Christian, uh, that he will not erase their name from the book of life. Uh, we talked about that last time, uh, that Christ would confess his name before his Father and his angels. Um, and Jesus reaffirmed the promise. He was essentially reaffirming the promise that he had made during his earthly ministry. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying the same thing to the faithful remnant there in Sardis, as we saw last week. And the letter to Sardis ends the same way the others do. Uh, this, this, uh, this very forceful command to pay attention to what the Lord of the church uh, is saying. What the Spirit says to the churches. So any questions about what we saw last week with the letter to Sardis before we start into the new letter? Questions? Comments? Okay, uh, if you'll open your Bible to Revelation chapter 3, or your device, <clears throat> something that has uh, a copy of the scriptures on so you can follow along. So um, we're in Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 7, uh, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. So this is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 7. And to the angel, or messenger, of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Um, so just uh, one more time, the geography, John on Patmos, the seven... Uh, messengers to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and now Philadelphia. There's praise for, praise for deeds and faithfulness. There's no criticism uh, in this letter. Uh, there's an exhortation to hold on to what you have, and there's a reward to become a pillar of the temple. 
Uh, let me start out, uh, first of all, with uh, a quote from John MacArthur. Uh, John MacArthur says this, Occasionally I am asked by young men seeking a church to pastor if I know of a church without any problems. My response to them is, If I did, I wouldn't tell you. You'd go there and spoil it. The point is that there are no perfect churches. The church is not a place for people with no weaknesses. It is a fellowship of those who are aware of their weaknesses and long for the strength and grace of God to fill their lives. It is a kind of hospital for those who know they are sick and needy. Like all churches, the one in Philadelphia had its imperfections, yet the Lord commended its members for their faithfulness and loyalty. They and the congregation at Smyrna were the only two of the seven that received no rebuke from the Lord of the church. In spite of their fleshly struggles, the Christians at Philadelphia were faithful and obedient, serving and worshiping the Lord. They provide a good model of a loyal church. And so just because the Church of Philadelphia doesn't receive any specific um, rebuke or condemnation doesn't mean that it was a perfect church. That's, uh, that's really the point. There is no such thing as a, as a perfect church. A church is a, a body of, um, of sinners redeemed by grace. Um, and we, we all struggle uh, with the flesh. Okay. Um, so, the, uh, the, we'll go verse by verse through this. So, starting in verse 7, we have this uh, introduction and description of who is writing the letter to the church. Um, and it is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, the divine author of all seven letters. He introduces himself with a description reflecting his character. Uh, we have seen in the previous five letters that he uses descriptions from the vision in the pre, in verse one, uh, chapter one, verses twelve to seventeen, John has a vision of the glorified Christ, and the first five letters all use exact phrases from that vision. This one does not. Um, it's drawn from an earlier vision, and it has Old Testament features. It uh, it's it starts with He who is holy, and that of course refers to God, uh, who alone possesses absolute holiness. The Old Testament repeatedly describes God as the Holy One. 2 Kings chapter 19, Job chapter 6, Psalm 71, 78, Isaiah 43, 54, Habakkuk 3, uh, all describe God as the Holy One. Isaiah 6, 3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And we have a similar thing we'll see when we get to Revelation chapter 4. And so this is an obvious description of God. Uh, to say that God is holy is to say that He is utterly separate from sin. His character is absolutely unblemished and flawless. And so that's how Christ describes Himself in this letter. Because this letter is from He who is holy. It can be no less than a claim of deity. And so we see these uh, absolute claims to deity throughout Revelation. Of course, it's in other places in Scripture as well. Uh, but if somebody asks you uh, the question, well, did Christ ever claim deity for himself? Uh, there are lots of excellent scriptures in Revelation that you can use. Uh, he absolutely claimed deity for himself over and over and over again in the book of Revelation, in addition to other places in scripture. Uh, and because Christ is holy, his church must be as well. 
First uh, Peter chapter one, like the Holy One who called you, wrote Peter, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So a call to holiness, because the one who called us is holy. And in this omniscient holy one, in this particular case for this church, gave no rebuke or warning or condemnation of this Philadelphia church. Uh, he speak, that speaks very well of this church indeed. Not that they're perfect, but that their character, their general character, Christ finds uh, no, no fault like he does with all those other churches. And then there's a second description after he says the Holy One. He also describes himself as he who is true. A second description of the author of this letter, a description that Christ gives himself, he who is true. Uh, truth is used in combination with holiness to describe God in several different places in Revelation here, but also chapter 6, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 19. So this is a, um, a frequent combination in the, in the book of Revelation, holiness and truth together. Uh, the Greek word alethanos, uh, true, denotes that which is genuine, authentic, and real. Uh, that's the flavor of that word, that description that Christ gives him, uh, gives to himself. So uh, think about uh, church living in the world. Uh, in the midst of falsehood and perversion and error that's all throughout the world, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is truth. That's how he's designated himself here. Uh, John chapter 14 also, of course, um, he describes himself as truth. And, and that's a, a stark contrast with the world. Uh, the third description that Christ gives himself here uh, is the one who has the key of David. Uh, who has the key of David. Uh, so what does that mean? The one who has the key of David. Uh, so it's clear from, uh, we'll see later on in Revelation, uh, Revelation 5, Revelation 22, that David symbolizes the Messianic office. And so we have the Davidic covenant uh, that there would, never, uh, there would never lack for a, a man in David's line on the throne. Um, and so this is um, an eschatological symbol, uh, a symbol of uh, the, the Christ's office as the Messiah, uh, as the son of David, the, the descendant of David. A key in scripture uh, represents authority. So here he's holding a key. Uh, whoever holds a key has control. We saw that in Revelation chapter 1, where Christ is identified as having the key to death and Hades. Uh, we also see in other places in Revelation chapter 9 and chapter 20, we'll see keys again. Uh, Matthew 16, we see a key. Um, the term, the key of David, actually, that phrase is used in Isaiah chapter 22. Uh, it refers to a man named Eliakim, who was the steward or prime minister to Israel's king. And because he had the key, key of David, uh, that was the control and access to the monarchy and the treasury. As holder of the key of David, Jesus alone has sovereign authority to determine who enters his messianic kingdom. Uh, we see that uh, theme in John chapter 10, in John chapter 14, and in Acts chapter 4. Uh, there is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. 
Revelation chapter 1, uh, as I just mentioned, we had this uh, symbol of Jesus holding uh, keys to death and Hades. Um, and here he's depicted to having the keys to salvation and blessing, uh, keys to entering the, the kingdom of heaven. So he has all the keys. He has the keys to death and Hades. He has the keys to uh, salvation and blessing. Uh, all authority has been given to Christ. Uh, and it's symbolized, that authority is symbolized by these keys. Um, and then the final description that Jesus gives for himself is he who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. So what symbol, that, that symbol, that description uh, stresses Christ's omnipotence. Uh, what he does cannot be overturned by someone more powerful because there is no one more powerful. Um, it uh, reflects back to Isaiah 43 where God says, I act and who can reverse it? Um, and Jesus is saying the same thing. Uh, if, I, if I open a door, nobody can shut it. If I shut a door, nobody can open it. Uh, this is his omnipotence. We see the same theme in Isaiah 46, Jeremiah 18, Daniel chapter 4. So no one can shut the doors to the kingdom or to blessing if Christ holds them open, and no one can force them open if he holds them shut. Sovereignty over entrance into the kingdom, positively and negatively. So the emphasis on Christ's sovereign control over his church and over his kingdom. Uh, that Jesus Christ, the holy, true, sovereign, omnipotent Lord of the church, found nothing to condemn in the Philadelphia church, must have been a joyous encouragement to them. So we re remember that this is an actual event that happened in actual history, in space-time history. There were actually seven messengers who went from Patmos and went around to these churches and they read these letters out. And imagine if you were the previous church in Sardis and the first thing in your letter is, and you're dead. Um, not a great thing to hear. Um, and, but then imagine you're the Philadelphia church and there's nothing but com commendation, nothing but praise from the Lord of the church. Uh, you're hearing this read out loud. And you've also heard what he said to the other churches as well. So great encouragement to these believers in the church in Philadelphia. <clears throat> uh, any, any questions about the, uh, the introduction before we get on to the church and the city? Okay. Um, about the church. So the same as Sardis in the last couple of churches we've gone through, there's no... A uh, separate description of a founding of a church at Philadelphia in Scripture. Uh, there's only the uh, the single mention in Acts chapter 19 that. Uh, so Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus, three years in Ephesus, and then Acts chapter 19 says the gospel went out through the province of Asia, um, and most likely then uh, the same holds for Philadelphia, probably founded during Paul's ministry at Ephesus. A few years after John wrote Revelation, the early church father Ignatius passed through Philadelphia. He left a description of going to the church of Philadelphia on his way to martyrdom at Rome uh, and wrote a letter back to the church at Philadelphia of encouragement and instruction before, you know, once he was in Rome, but before he was martyred. 
Some Christians from Philadelphia were martyred with Polycarp and Smyrna. So remember um, the early church father Polycarp was, was uh, martyred in Smyrna. And there were evidently, uh, in extra-biblical sources, there were Christians from Philadelphia that were also martyred with him. And uh, this church lasted. So we've already seen a couple churches that went out of existence early. This one did not. It lasted for many centuries. Uh, the Christians in Philadelphia stood firm even after the region was overrun by Muslims. So Muslims overran um, what is today modern Turkey in the 6 and 700s. Um, and this church survived in the midst of um, uh, that, the, Mer the Muslim hegemony uh, all the way up to the 14th century, uh, the church there. Finally, it, uh, it winked out of existence in the mid-14th century. Um, the city itself, uh, situated on an easily defensible site, 800-foot-high hill overlooking an important road. It was not, however, founded primarily as a military outpost. Thyatira was founded as a military outpost. Uh, Philadelphia was not. Uh, it was intended to be a center of Greek culture and language. So uh, Greek, Greece, of course, was to the west of Turkey, and Greek culture came from um, Greece with Alexander the Great, his conquests, but uh, the Greek culture kind of followed along behind, and the founding of this city was, was particularly meant to spread the Greek culture and language further east. Uh, into the center of the province of Asia. So it was essentially a missionary outpost for spreading Hellenism to the regions of Lydia and Phrygia, which were individual regions within the province of Asia. And Philadelphia succeeded in that mission uh, so well that by AD 19, the Lydian language had completely been replaced by Greek. So it had originally been this, uh, this kingdom called Lydia. Sardis was the capital, and Philadelphia was also within this, uh, this kingdom of Lydia. And they had their own language and culture. But by AD 19, the Greek language and culture had completely replaced the Lydian language and culture. Uh, Philadelphia benefited from being located at the junction of several important trade routes, um, as well as being a stop on the Imperial Post Road. All seven of these churches were on the Imperial Post Road. And so Philadelphia got this title of Gateway to the East. Uh, so Gateway to the East. It was located in a seismically active volcanic region. Um, and so the soil was great because there are lots of volcanic ash there from previous eruptions, uh, making it ideally suited for vineyards. So they grew grapes uh, and made wine there. However, as we saw with the last church in Sardis, Sardis was destroyed by an earthquake in AD 17. Well, that same earthquake destroyed Philadelphia too. Powerful earthquake rocked the central area of, uh, of Turkey. Uh, Sardis and 10 other cities were destroyed along with Philadelphia. Uh, the initial destruction was greater in Sardis, but Philadelphia was near the epicenter, and they kept having aftershocks uh, for years afterwards. Caesar Tiberius gave financial aid to rebuild Philadelphia, just like he did Sardis. And they all, all these cities got together and erected a monument to Caesar Tiberius. And Philadelphia actually went a little bit further. They changed their name for, um, for a time to Neo-Caesarea, New Caesar. Uh, they changed their name from Philadelphia to New Caesar out of gratefulness to the Caesar for uh, rebuilding their city. Um, 
Then they also later on renamed their city to Flavia, Flavia, in honor of the ruling imperial family. And so for a couple of centuries, Philadelphia had two names, Philadelphia and Flavia, uh, throughout the second and third centuries. Uh, so that's the city. Any questions about the city itself before we get to the actual content of the message? All right, let's dive in. Beginning in verse 8, I know your deeds. And Christ started out several letters like that. I know your deeds. Um, Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. So uh, the, the omnipotent, all-seeing, omniscient, uh, risen Christ, he sees their deeds. He sees everything. We've mentioned this in each of the other letters, uh, that nothing can be hidden from Christ. And yet, he finds nothing in their deeds that caused him concern. The Lord Jesus Christ moves immediately to commend the Christians at Philadelphia uh, for four realities that characterize the congregation. First, the Philadelphia church had a little power. Um, that's not a negative comment on their feebleness, uh, but a, a commendation of their strength. The Philadelphia church was probably small in numbers, like we see discussed in Luke 12. Um, little power, um, small numbers, and not individually greatly influential in the society. But um, that's not the characteristic that's important in a spiritual sense. But they had a powerful impact on the city. Uh, most of its members were probably poor, uh, little power being um, uh, that they, they, they weren't the important, powerful, uh, influential members of society. Um, similar to what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul talking about the Corinthian church. Uh, but Paul says, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's the kind of picture I think we have of this church in Philadelphia. Despite its small size, spiritual power flowed in the Philadelphia church. People were being redeemed, lives were being transformed, the gospel of Christ being proclaimed. The believers at Philadelphia were also marked by obedience. Uh, they kept Christ's word. So that's how Jesus described them, kept my word. Obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. They had kept his word. Uh, like Job, they could say, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food, Job 23. Like Martin Luther on trial before the imperial diet, they could say, my conscience is captive to the word of God. They had kept his word. They did not deviate from the pattern of obedience, they, thus pr proving the genuineness of their love for Christ. John 14, John 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Christ further commended the Philadelphia congregation for not having denied his name. So they had kept his word, and they did not deny his name, uh, despite pressure they faced to do so. So they were living in a sinful world among um, 
sinning people, just like all the other churches were, but they had not denied his name. They remained loyal no matter what it cost. The Philadelphia church would not recant its faith. And so this is a picture of obedience and faithfulness uh, all the way through. Um, Because of the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ makes these astounding promises. The first one, he put before them an open door which no one can shut. Uh, And I think that refers to two things. Uh, One is their salvation was secure. Their entrance both into the blessings of salvation by grace and into Christ's future messianic kingdom was guaranteed. That door is open. Nobody can shut it. The picture of an open door also symbolizes giving the faithful church opportunities for service. At least it does elsewhere in Scripture. Elsewhere in Scripture, an open door depicts freedom to proclaim the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 4. So that symbolism of an open door, Paul often uses that as the Holy Spirit has opened a door for me to go over and and do evangelism in such and such an area. Paul says that over and over again. uses the open door as a symbol of an opportunity to go and proclaim the gospel. And so um, there is some... A uh, friendly argument among uh, commentators about which one primarily this means, uh, but I don't see why it can't be both. Um, so, yeah, let's let's. Uh, I'll I'll tell you about both of them. You can, you know, wrestle with what you think it means. An open door meaning their salvation secure, and also an open door symbolizes them having an opportunity for service and evangelism. Uh, Their city's strategic location provided the Christians at Philadelphia with an excellent opportunity to spread the gospel. It was the gateway to the east, uh, trade routes, people going through, uh, trade caravans going through. Excellent opportunity to spread the gospel. An open door. But I think it also, um, if I had to guess, I would say the primary primary one, especially since that seems to be what he's talking about with his introduction and later on, as we'll see, um, with the references to his second coming, I think it primarily means their salvation is secure. Uh, Anybody else have any thoughts or questions about that? All right, verse 9. Let's take a look at verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. So here's a second promise. Not only the open door, but also this promise about uh, the synagogue of Satan coming and bowing down to their feet. Um, What is that all about? So, as was the case in Smyrna, Christians in Philadelphia faced hostility from unbelieving Jews. Uh, The last uh, church, there was no uh, significant Jewish population. This one, it seems that there is, and there's persecution from them. Um, Ignatius uh, later debated some hostile Jews during his visit to Philadelphia. So, uh, I mentioned that Ignatius came through Philadelphia on his way to Rome and was later martyred in Rome. And he mentions that he stopped in Philadelphia. Well, he also mentions specifically that he debated hostile Jews in Philadelphia. So there were hostile uh, Jews in Philadelphia. Um, 
And Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. Because of the rejection of Christ as the Messiah, uh, they were not at all a synagogue of God, but a synagogue of Satan. Though they claimed they were Jews, that claim was a lie. Racially, culturally, and ceremonially, they were Jews, but spiritually they were not. And we see that uh, Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 9, uh, where he talks about the fact that circumcision, true circumcision is circumcision of the heart, not the outward circumcision. And these Jews obviously were not circumcised in the heart. Um, they were Jews outwardly, but they were a synagogue of Satan, according to Christ. Uh, then chapter 10, or verse 10, sorry. Uh, verse 10. Because you have kept my word, uh, kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And so this is obviously pointing to uh, end times things, a persecution that's coming on the entire world. Um, so verse 10 contains a fourth and final commendation for the church. Its members have kept the word of his perseverance. Um, the New International Version translation, I think, uh, brings out the meaning a little bit better. Uh, NRV says, you have kept my command to endure patiently. Um, kept the word of my perseverance, kept uh, my command to endure patiently. The Christians at Philadelphia had persevered faithfully through all of their trials and difficulties. The steadfast endurance that marked Jesus' earthly life. So Hebrews chapter 12, we get this in, uh, description of Jesus' earthly life uh, as one of endurance, and that's supposed to be a model to all Christians. Uh, to the Thessalonians, for example, Paul wrote, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So, uh, a imitation of the steadfast obedience that Christ had to the Father is an example of the steadfast obedience that we're to have to Christ. And uh, the way Paul says that um, your heart's into the love of God and into the steadfastness of, of Christ. And so that is the kind of description that we have here of this church in Philadelphia, that they had kept the word of my perseverance, they had kept his command to endure patiently. They had imitated Christ in that respect. So both Christ's command and his example should motivate Christians to patient endurance. Uh, indeed, Matthew 10 says that endurance is an essential aspect of saving faith. Next, there's a final promise to the faithful Philadelphia church. Because of their perseverance, Christ says, I also will keep you from the hour of of testing. That's a remarkable thing. Uh, because the believers in Philadelphia had successfully passed so many tests, Jesus promised to spare them from the ultimate test. But it's not just them, of course. Um, the sweeping nature of that promise extends far beyond the Philadelphia congregation to encompass all faithful churches throughout history. Um, this verse promises that the church will be delivered from the tribulation. The, 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 um, uh, this testing that's about to come on the whole world. 
that's that's looking forward to the tribulation. Um, and but the church is not going to experience that. The faithful church in Philadelphia was promised they won't experience that, and neither will any other faithful church uh, throughout history experience that tribulation. Uh, the rapture is the subject of three passages in the New Testament, John chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and, uh, and finally and most prominently in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and none of which speak of judgment. So none, none of those, um, that, uh, um, that rapture is a rapture out of judgment such that the church doesn't uh, experience that great judgment that Christ brings on the unbelieving world. And so the, the initial promise of that here is to that church in Philadelphia, uh, but that church that promise extends uh, to all faithful churches throughout all history. Just like we have in all of these letters to these churches, there's um, a very specific application to a specific church in the first century, and then there's also application to all churches throughout all time. Uh, yes, Tegan. So, yeah, so um, it, it's because it fits with all the rest of teaching about the, the rapture of the church and the fact that the church will not experience judgment. So we've already had that teaching in John chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and especially in 1 Thessalonians 14. We already have that teaching, and so this... Uh, additional promise, this kind of promise to the church in Philadelphia fits with what we've already been taught, what they had already been taught in uh, the letters of Paul, and this promise to them um, I think is a, a kind of an additional comfort to this church that's living in a, uh, a sinful world and they've gone through persecutions uh, because they have persevered through all these persecutions um, he's essentially reminding them of this teaching, and the way that um, the way that the revelation works, the book of Revelation, the revelation that occurs in the book of Revelation, is it often makes a little bit clearer things that have previously been taught in Scripture, um, so that we can say, "Oh, yeah, that's that's what that means." Um, like the the prophecies in Daniel, for example, um, we can. Once we know what's been written in Revelation, we can look back at the at the prophecies in Daniel and say, oh yeah, that fits. They all fit together. And I think this is another one of those examples. This promise to the church in Philadelphia fits with what's been promised to all the faithful church in 1 Thessalonians 14, for example, that the church would not uh, be part of this judgment. And we see that again here. And then we see a complete description of what that judgment looks like um, later in Revelation 6 through 19 when we'll, we'll get this real detailed description of what that tribulation period looks like. So, First Thessalonians 4. Yeah, 4, 13 through 17. Yeah, um, that's the description of the rapture. Yes? Kind of as a follow-up to that. So, if referring to the tribulation here then what's which is many generations later right. we haven't experienced that yep. so what is the church at Philadelphia currently receiving from this message so yeah so it's a, it's a good question um, th there's the same kind of um, um, 
thinking when you look at First Thessalonians chapter four, uh, the, what's the church at Thessalonica getting out of First Thessalonians chapter four? Um, and I think that um, it, with these general promises, um, it's not that um, that we, ex- for example, for Hope Bible Church in twenty. 23, um, what are we getting out of that promise? Any of these promises that uh, about what's going to happen at the end times? Uh, first of all, nobody knows when the tribulation period is going to be. Um, and so, in a sense, we all have this... Um, um, this expectation that of Christ's return, and we don't know the day or the hour. No man knows the day or the hour, uh, but we have this um, we have this 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 promise that gives us comfort that if Christ came, if if the if the tribulation started today, that we wouldn't have to experience it, um, and. If you think about it, since no man knows the day or the hour, um, there can't, and if he's going to reveal anything about it, then um, it has to be, it has to be this way, given this way, because it could be any day or hour, but nobody's going to know. And so the promise is given in such a way that we understand that this is coming, and we have this comfort that knows that, no, we won't go through that tribulation that's described there. But nobody knows when it's going to be. And since the canon is closed, this has all been revealed, uh, all that's going to be revealed all the way till Christ comes again. Uh, the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the return of Christ and the beginning of these events here. Um, if, it's, if, if it was going to be revealed before it was happened and it was revealed in the first century, then these kind of promises here um, for all churches of all time are, um, are going to be revealed to churches that the people in those churches live and died and Christ has not come again. Um, and I think we just have to um, accept that as... Uh, in God's perfect wisdom, that's how he decided to reveal it. Uh, even though, as you point out, this Philadelphia church, you know, all the people in that church are long, long dead. And the, the te- that this testing that came upon the whole world didn't happen while those people were alive. Same thing with the church in Thessalonica. The rapture didn't happen. The, the rapture that was described to that church in Thessalonica, and Paul uses it as a comfort to those Christians in Thessalonica. And yet, the rapture didn't happen while they were, while they were uh, alive. Um, and so that seems kind of strange to us. Um, and I admit, yeah, that does sound kind of strange. But think about the fact of a... Of a a closed canon, a closed set of revelation from Genesis to Revelation, uh, God revealing himself in history. Um, and if he was going to re- reveal anything about the end times, then you were of necessity going to end up with a revelation that went to a whole bunch of people, both in the first century 
2nd century, 3rd century, 4th, 10th, 12th, 15th century, all the way to today, that never experience the events or promises that are in here. Um, now we'll talk about later the fact that you end up you end up having some description of um, saints in heaven and and what what the implication of those are. Uh, but yeah, it's a good it's a good thought to tr twist your mind around to think about what God is doing with revelation throughout history, uh, His revelation of Himself and His plan of redemption all the way through history, and then the fact that He's finished revealing it all. Um, with the book of Revelation that was written uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, and the next thing that's going to happen is Christ coming again. Yeah. Yep. In a, in a sense, it, it is. So um, he, he made a whole bunch of promises to Abraham. And many of those promises were there was descendants and land, and um, uh, it, it was a it was a promise of salvation through him through his descendants, um, and of course Abraham never owned anything in the in the land that was promised to him uh, except for one cave, um, and you know Isaac never owned anything uh, except for that one cave. Uh, Jacob never owned anything except for that one cave. Um, and so, yes, in, in a sense, the kind of promises made uh, carried on and uh, the promise made to David, the Davidic covenant, um, uh, you know, the, the nation of Israel went completely out of existence. Um, but, and yet, God was still working through the line of David all the way up through the Messiah. Uh, yeah, so there, there are examples of that, that you, you have these promises that God made, and it's only looking back, sometimes it's only looking back uh, centuries or millennia later to see what God was doing with that promise. Uh, what do you, what do you, the actual meaning of that promise, the people that were given that promise didn't have a full understanding of what the implications were. Uh, of that promise keep you from the hour of testing so in other words they won't end up being in the, this hour of testing um, so it's um, the the description of this whole thing that's coming on the world uh, this test on all, all that dwell on the earth um, that description is obvious is using uh, universal and broad language to describe something that's happening to the whole world um, and so from that, I deduce that he's talking about the tribulation period. So we're starting with that. So that's a description of the tribulation period. And so these, this church in Philadelphia, and by extension all of, um, uh, churches, faithful churches throughout time, because all of these letters have been... Um, to church, individual churches, but also types of churches throughout history. All the letters, not just this one, but all of them, um, will not experience that tribulation, will be kept from that tribulation. So the way that they are kept from that tribulation is not explained here, but it is explained in, f in 1 Thessalonians 4, the way that they're kept from that tribulation explained in 1 Thessalonians 4. So we need 1 Thessalonians 4 to show us how that keeping is done. 
Um, okay, any other, any other questions? Okay, uh, let me continue then. Uh, several aspects of this promise may be noted. First, the test is yet future. Second, the test is for a definite limited time. Jesus described it as an hour of testing. Third, is a test or trial that will expose people for what they really are. Fourth, the test is worldwide in scope, since it will come upon the whole world. Finally, and most significantly, its purpose is to test those who dwell on the earth. And that phrase, dwell on the earth is used as a technical term in the book of Revelation for unbelievers. We see this exact same phrase, meaning obviously unbelievers in uh, Revelation 6, 8, 11, 13, uh, 14, and 17. So a technical term for unbelievers. Uh, the hour of testing is Daniel's 70th week, Daniel chapter 9, the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, the seven-year tribulation period, which we're going to see um, in great detail in Revelation 6 through 19. So the Lord promises to keep his church out of the future time of testing to fall on unbelievers. Um, yeah, any, any questions about any of that? What he's talking about here? Okay. Uh, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have. The coming that Christ refers to differs from those promises to the previous churches. Coming because of particular issues that they had. That's not the case here. Uh, those earlier promises were warnings of impending judgment on that church, sinning congregations. The coming spoken of here is to bring the hour of testing. So we just talked about the hour of testing that, that occurs at, his, um, at the tribulation and the, the time of his second coming. It's Christ coming to deliver the church, not to bring judgment to it. So quickly depicts the imagery of Christ coming for his church. It could happen at any time. Every believer's response should be, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Revelation 22, 20, the end of the scriptures. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Uh, because of the Lord's imminent return for his church, believers must hold fast what they have. The members of the Philadelphia church have been faithful and loyal to Christ, and he commanded, that he commanded them to remain so. Hold fast to what you have. Remain faithful just like you have been. Uh, those who persevere to the end thereby prove the genuineness of their salvation. Uh, according to 1 John chapter 2, um, they went out from us. Uh, those who abandoned the faith revealed that they were never truly saved to begin with. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it should be shown that they all are not of us. Never of us to begin with. Christ's promise to the one who faithfully perseveres is no one will take your crown. Uh, similar to James chapter 1. Uh, Revelation 2.10 uh, defines the crown as the crown of life. Um, the Greek text literally says the crown which is life. Uh, the crown or reward for those who faithfully endure to the end is eternal life with all its attendant rewards. Second John verse 8. In our glorified state, we will be perfectly righteous and thus perfectly able to reflect God's glory. Those whose faithful perseverance marks them as true children of God need never fear losing their salvation, just like we talked about last time. Uh, he concludes the letter to this faithful church with a uh, promise of four blessings. Uh, for the one who overcomes, and we've talked about this before, the one who overcomes is another name for Christians. 1 John chapter 5. The first promise, Christ will make him a pillar in the temple. Um, the pillar represents stability, permanence, immovability. Uh, pillars can also re represent honor. 
Uh, it was that way with uh, pagan temples of the day. Uh, this promise of Christ makes to believers is they will have an eternal place of honor in the temple of God, heaven. Uh, to people used to fleeing their city because of earthquakes and enemies, the promise that they will not go out from heaven was understood as security in eternal glory. His second promise uh, to those who overcome is he will write on him the name of his God. Uh, and this depicts ownership, signifying that all true Christians belong to God. He owns us. His name is written on us. It also speaks of the intimate personal relationship we have with him forever. The third promise is to write on believers the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Uh, Christians have eternal citizenship in heaven's capital city, the new Jerusalem. Described at length, we'll see in Revelation 21. Uh, so that's yet another promise of security, safety, and glory for these faithful Christians. Finally, Christ promises believers his new name. Christ's name represents the fullness of his person. In heaven, believers will see him just as he is, 1 John chapter 3. And the new name by which we will be privileged to call him will reflect that glorious revelation of his person. We'll see him just as he is fully uh, when we're in heaven with him. And so that's the representation of having his name written on us. Uh, the exhortation, he who has an ear, so and this, this one closes the same as all the others. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, and so this is the, this, uh, this command that we're to pay attention to what Christ says. Heed the truths found in each of these letters. Since the seven churches represent types of churches that have existed throughout history, it's a specific message to these seven churches in the first century, but it's also a message that if we have an ear, we better listen to for any church throughout all time, all the way up to today, and Hope Bible Church. So this letter to the faithful Philadelphia church reveals that the holy, true, sovereign, omnipotent God pours out his blessing on churches that remain loyal and faithful to him. He will bless them with open doors for evangelism, for eternal salvation, for kingdom blessings, deliverance from the great time of testing that will come on the earth. That's a promise not only to the Philadelphia church, but all the way through, all the way up to today, and as long as it takes, as long as Christ tarries. He will ultimately bring all those who persevere in their faith to the eternal bliss of heaven where he will reveal himself fully to them, face-to-face uh, -face with the glorified Christ, knowing him fully. The promise of those rich blessings should motivate every church and every Christian to follow the Philadelphia church's example of faithfulness. Any questions? About the, yes, go ahead, Raymond. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, most likely um, that's eschatological language as well. Um, that in the end, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. And so, what's the particular issue here uh, is that the church in Philadelphia is preaching that Christ is the Messiah. And the Jews who refuse to acknowledge him as their Messiah 
um, are going to be taught that yes, he is, and that that Jesus loves his church, and he does not love those who reject him. In other words, they'll have to bow down to this reality that in fact Jesus and his church uh, are, um, it's that, that's the reality, that they're opposing reality by saying no, Christ is not the Messiah. Um, I think that's going to be the, uh, the eventual, um, the, the notion that we see that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. And that's, been, that's the particular issue here with Jews who don't believe. No, he's not Lord. No, he's not Messiah. But, but they'll, be, they'll be shown that, uh, I think, is what Christ is promising. And that promise is, of course, embedded with this, all these other promises that are about the tribulation period. So the other promise is that they won't, won't have to go through the testing of the tribulation period. This promise, the other promise is that uh, the Jews uh, will be shown that he is the Lord and Messiah. Yes, Richard. Well, I don't think we see that. Uh, we certainly don't see a, a, a condemnation of them having people like that in the church. We see that in other churches, this uh, uh, condemnation that they've allowed some people into the church that are uh, teaching false doctrine. We don't see that here with the Philadelphia church. Um, and so it seems that it's a, a group outside the church that have set them up in opposition to Christ in his church, um, particularly Jews. And so this is the second time we've seen this synagogue of Satan, and it seems to refer to uh, Jews that um, say that they're Abraham's descendants, say that they're God's people, and Christ is saying, no, 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 no. If you reject me as Messiah, that makes you a synagogue of Satan if you've rejected me as Messiah. Uh, that's what he's saying here. Any others? Yeah, so we'll talk, yeah, we talked about that in the introduction. We'll talk about it some more when we get to the actual tribulation um, about the reasons why we teach, we believe the Bible teaches a, a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, let me close this with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together this morning with you and your word. Uh, we, we thank you for this wonderful example of the church in Philadelphia, a faithful church. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we would be a faithful church, too. Uh, we know, Lord, that you can see all and that you're, uh, you see our deeds. And we pray, Lord, that uh, if there's any um, unrighteousness and unholiness in us, that you would root it out and that we would uh, be faithful to you. We thank you for the wonderful promises that we have in your word. Uh, the, including the promises about your second coming. We thank you for the opportunity that we're about to have for corporate worship, to sing songs to you and to, to hear the preaching of the, of the word uh, to your glory. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that everything that we do in this worship service would bring glory to your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.